with Xavier Reese and the simple truths of God achieving His divine providence. The unseen hand of God is ever-present on my life and your life. I don't always see it. I don't always recognize it. Therefore, the safest place is in my perfect obedience to the Word of God, regardless of what it costs me. In His infinite wisdom, He will use everything and anything for His purposes. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. The curious distinction of the book of Esther is that it doesn't mention the name of God. Sometimes God does seem to be silent in our own life, too. Some might even think that He doesn't always care. Yet, in the continuation of a message titled, The Unseen Hand of God, Pastor Xavier points out the simple truth that God, in fact, is always in control. And although we can't see Him, God is always doing things in the world that nobody can stop. Let's listen. How often God has worked in history, how often God has worked in your life and my life, or will work, and it won't be totally clear that sometimes it won't even make any sense. Well, such is the case in the book of Esther. This is the providence of God. Let me define for you providence. Providence is the beneficent outworking of God's sovereignty, whereby all events are directed and disposed to bring about those purposes of glory and good for which the universe was made. These events include the actions of free agents, which while remaining free, personal or responsible, are also the intended action of those agents. In other words, God works within the world, within our lives, be it believer, non-believer, whatever the difficulty of the situation, in such a way to work out His purposes that he does not violate man's free moral agent of decision. Providence thus encompasses both natural and personal events, setting them alike within the purposes of God. We are given three scenes in the providence of God in chapter 2 of the book of Esther. The first scene is that of the discouraged king. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. Secondly, the disobedient Jews, verses 5 through 14. And thirdly, the decisive God, verses 15 through 23. Let's look at the first scene, the discouraged king. First, he was discouraged because of his defeat against Greece. The first portion of verse 1 says, after these things. After what things? History tells us Ahasuerus went on a campaign against Greece and he was defeated. If you look at chapter 1, verse 3, it says that in the third year of his reign he made a feast. If you look at chapter 2, verse 16, it says that was the seventh year of his reign. There's three to four years between these chapters. It was during this time that he went on his campaign against Greece. 
He wants to display his splendor, his glory. What better way if you read the account in chapter 1 and verse 7 and 8, he speaks about drinking vessels of gold and silver, all of them being different from one another. Can you imagine throwing a party for six months? And he was celebrating without doubt, trying to convince these individuals that he was able to conquer Greece, perhaps even soliciting some help. Now, as the Hasherahs went to fight against Greece, he was defeated in the Battle of Salamis in 480 B.C. at a naval defeat. He was equally defeated at the Battle of Plataea in 479 B.C. Now he's back, discouraged. He's bummed out. But he was discouraged also not only because he had been defeated, but he was discouraged because of his decree to dethrone Vashti. The rest of verse 1 in chapter 2 says that when the wrath of the king Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now his decree was during the, a drunken stupor in chapter 1, verse 10 through 11. On the seventh day, when his heart was merry, he was a little tipsy, he commanded Mahuman and all these other guys we can't pronounce, uh, verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing the royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. She refused to come in. Without doubt, she was to come in and display herself immodestly. And she refused. Now his cabinet quickly came to his aid in verse 13 through 22 and his advisors, and they say, hey, listen, what are you going to do, king? If our wives hear of what Queen Vashti did, they will never obey us. And then we'll really have some problems in the kingdom. So I'll tell you what, what you need to do is you need to dethrone her. You need to get her off. So this way, when we go home, our wives, when they hear about it, they'll fear us and reverence us and they'll know that we are the ones in command of the home. And so the queen was dethroned. But then in verses 2 through 4 in chapter 2, his determination was to fill a void. The king's servants who attended to him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and at a point in time they would have a beauty pageant, and he would pick one out. Then we have the disobedient Jews in verses 5 through 14. First one is Mordecai the Jew. He is called that in verse 5. He was the son of Kish, a Benjamite. What a resemblance to Saul, the son of Kish, the Benjamite, who was disobedient to God. Now you say, how was Mordecai disobedient, Xavier? Simply by this. He was carried away, verse 6 tells us, in the second siege of Jerusalem in 597. God had declared that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. But God equally said that after the 70 years, he would bring them back to the land. What in the world is Mordecai doing in Persia? Now you must put the book of Esther between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. Chapter 7, verse 1, Ezra returns to Jerusalem. Mordecai and Esther should have been there with him as well as all the rest of the Jews. Less than 60,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and to rebuild the temple. 
as we have studied Ezra and Nehemiah. Millions were still scattered through the kingdom. What were they doing there? Let me suggest to you that they were out of the will of God. They were supposed to be in Jerusalem. If there was no Jews in Persia, there would have been no danger to them. Isn't it interesting when we try to build our own safety, our own security, we're in the greatest danger? Now, he wasn't a young man. He was an older man. He opted out for the comfort, the contentment, and the safety that Persia offered. So he thought. The second individual is Hadassah or Esther. Hadassah, her Hebrew name, which means myrtle. Esther, her Persian name, which means star. Verse 7 says she was a cousin to Mordecai. She had been taken in and raised by him after her father's death. Now, there were clear consequences because of the compromise. Verses 8 on down to 14 gives us those consequences of compromise. First, she was taken as one of the virgins. Therefore, she would be defiled with the king's meat. Remember, she was a Jew. According to the Mosaic law, she could not eat certain foods. We get no record like Daniel where he purposed not to defile himself with the king's meat. So I have to assume that she partook and part of her portion was the food of the king. That's a compromise. Equally as a compromise to remain in Shushan, the palace or Susa. They should have been in Jerusalem. But see, one compromise will lead you to another. And the more you compromise, the harder it is to bring obedience to God's word because there's more consequences and it's more costly to me. I hear it so often in counseling. People come in and I say, well, what you need to do is you need to break the relationship. Well, I can't. I love him. We just bought a house together. Tough. Are you a Christian? Then break it off. But it's so hard. Right on. One thing will lead you to another. And the further you go down the road, the harder it is to bring obedience to Jesus Christ. Because it costs you more. In verse 10, she had hidden her identity of her race by the counsel of Mordecai, her cousin. Now, one of the objections about the book of Esther is that the name of God never appears. Prayer is never mentioned, though it is implied and God is behind the scenes. But let me suggest to you that the reason the name of God is not in the book is because the main characters denied God themselves. And Jesus says, if you deny me before man, I will deny you. And it's a beautiful picture of God and his faithfulness to what he has promised. But make no mistake, the unseen hand of God is behind the scenes. Thirdly, she had taken a chance on ending up in the king's harem. Verses 12 through 14 tells us that every young virgin was brought to the king, and if he did not allow favor to fall upon them, they would have their provisions, go back, and be placed in the harem. That means that she would be defiled all the days of her life as a concubine. What a compromise. What a chance her and Mordecai took. That would have never happened if they'd been in Jerusalem. But they chose comfort, their own reason, their own rationale. Fourthly, 
She was willing to be unequally yoked with an unbelieving king. Well, I thought that, that God was behind this, Zach. He was. He is and he was. But it isn't God's perfect will. There is God's permissive will. And make no mistake, it's permissive. And that permissive will always respects your free will. Yet, your free will, that's apart from the perfect will of God, will never thwart the ultimate purposes or will of God. I don't understand that. I only know it to be true. But my free will will affect me, sometimes very tragically, and for the rest of my life. In this second scene, we have the disobedient Jews. What a sad picture we have. If we weren't too careful, we would be liable to make them heroes. And I just wonder how many Christians today pass themselves off as heroes when they're like Esther and Mordecai. Before man, we seem and we look so great and so spiritual. But before the eyes of God, we're completely out of the will of God. Oh, let me tell you, God just gripped my heart with this teaching. Third and last, you have the decisive hand of God. Verses 15 through 23. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Behel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Hegai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to the king Hazarus into the royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast in the feast of Esther for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed the holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. The implication there is he suspended taxes for one year. That'd be pretty good for the U.S. government to do that, huh? I'd rejoice for that. When virgins were gathered together a second time, verse 18 says, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not yet revealed her kindred and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the commandments of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. Oh, that she would obey God instead of man. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hand on the king Hashras. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows. And it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. The decisive hand of God is seen here. In spite of the situation, in spite of the disobedience, First, God would use Esther in spite of the disobedience and compromise. Verses 15 through 18. First, to give her wisdom to depend on Hegai's advice. He knew the king's favor, his likes, his dislikes. And when it came for her turn to go in, she said, hey, whatever you want. What do you think would be best? Notice God is working, but she's out of the will of God. Secondly, to give her grace what she didn't deserve before the eyes of the king. Verse 17. Remember that grace is something that you and I do not deserve. It is grace, unmerited 
favor. It's never based on what I have done or can do. Third, to give her a place regarding the future purposes of God. Verse 18, she was at the right hand of the king. She was declared queen. For whose purposes? Esther's? No. God's future purposes. So God would use Esther in spite of her disobedience and compromise. But equally, God would use Mordecai in spite of his disobedience and compromise. And you get this through verses 19 through 23. First, to allow him to be promoted to a judge. Verse 19 says, he sat within the king's gate. If you've studied Old Testament, you know that whenever anyone sat on the gate, they were a judge. All of a sudden, Mordecai is a judge. It became handy for Esther to be queen now. And I can imagine both Esther and Mordecai at this time just riding high saying, Oh, we're right in the middle of God's will. No, you're not. And so often we judge our position in God's perfect will by our surroundings instead of our obedience to the word of God. Let me tell you, God blesses you because he loves you. Not because you deserve it. Not because you're in the perfect will of God. That's bad theology. Secondly, to allow Mordecai to hear about the assassination attempt in verse 21. And thirdly, to allow him to go on record as the one responsible for apprehending and to bringing the execution of these would-be assassins in verse 22 and 23. For what? For the future purposes of God. Esther's at the right hand of the king. Mordecai is a judge. And Mordecai's name is recorded in the Chronicles as the one responsible for saving the king's life. For when God is going to work in a further dimension. Esther and Mordecai had no idea what was going on. But I am positive they knew they were out of the will of God. But I'm also positive that once this, this big turmoil was over with, remember in verses... 11, Mordecai paced in front of the court back and forth trying to inquire the welfare of Esther. You think he wasn't scared for Esther? You think he didn't know he was out of the will of God? You think he didn't know he was disobedient not going back? You better believe he was. But like many of us, once it's over, now she's promoted, he's promoted, she's a queen, he said, oh, great. Instead of turning to God, he just allows the promotion the temporary peace to say, I'm all right with God. What a snare. What a danger. But having the benefit of the whole book, we can see the unseen hand of God. Even as Nebuchadnezzar confessed in Daniel 4.35, after he regained his sanity from being a beast for several seasons, he says, there's a God in heaven, and he does as he wills, and no one can say to him, what are you doing? Interesting. Even as Samson in spite of his disobedience, compromise, and carnality, was used by God to accomplish his purposes, and he brought down the temple of Dagon. Was Samson in the will of God? No. Was Samson a mighty spiritual man? No. Let me tell you, when God uses us, you know what? It's a greater commentary on him than on us. Sometimes it's only because we're the only ones around and not because we're so spiritual. Remember, he used Balaam's ass. Think about that. There's a direct application to all that we've studied here. 
First, God will and can use the most awkward situations, be they positive, negative, for his will and purposes. I don't always understand what God is doing. In his infinite wisdom, he will use everything and anything for his purposes. Secondly, God will use my disobedience and compromise for his purposes without violating my free will. Try to figure that one out. God will use my disobedience and compromise for his purposes without violating my free will. Yet, as we said, the longer I compromise, the harder it is to bring my life into the obedience of the word of God because the consequences are costly to me. 1 Samuel 15, 22 says it's better to obey than to sacrifice and to hearken to the fat of rams. And in that scripture, in that verse, God puts the sin of disobedience of a Christian equal to the sin of witchcraft. So I need to stop where I am. Whether I'm 10 compromises down the road or one, stop, repent, obey the word of God. Third, God's decisive hand will be on my life in spite of disobedience and compromise for his purposes. Yet not because I am in his will, but because I am the only one available in that place. I wonder how many people today find themselves in positions that God is using. And they think that they are so spiritual when in fact they're the only ones around. How humbling it is, isn't it? <laughs> What a different perspective we get when we look at it from Mars. Yeah, look at me. God looks down and says, yeah, look at you. <laughs> Remember in the book of Daniel, the second chapter, Nebuchadnezzar had the dream. He saw the image of gold, 90 feet high, tall, man's empire, strong, invincible. In the later chapters, God saw the very same image as beast. What a different perspective when it comes from heaven down, huh? It is humbling, isn't it? Don't judge your life in the will of God by his using you all the time. But judge your life, whether you're in the will of God, by your complete obedience to the word of God. By your obedience to the word of God. That's the standard. Not the blessing. Not the promotion. As a matter of fact, some of that comes because of the compromise many times. Jesus says, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Be careful when all men speak well of you. You're doing something wrong. What a tremendous teaching there is here. Direct application to my life. Direct application to your life. The unseen hand of God is ever-present on my life and your life. I don't always see it. I don't always recognize it. Therefore, the safest place is in my perfect obedience to the Word of God, regardless of what it costs me. Because when I seek out my own safety, my own security, I am always in the greatest danger. May God continue to deal with us. May He give us wisdom, discretion, that we rise above Mordecai and Esther. Don't make them heroes. They're not at this point. <laughs> They're out of the will of God. I hope you are in the will of God because you are obeying 
the Word of God. Pastor Xavier Reese, illustrating with the unfolding story of Esther how the providence of God will always achieve the will of God for our lives. Now, you can hear this message again, if you like, online anytime by selecting today's date at the radio listings link at calvarychapelpasadena.com. And you can pick up your own copy of today's study, The Unseen Hand of God. It's available, as usual, on CD for just $4. And with it, we'll be including everything Pastor Xavier taught the last time we were together as well. So once again, the title to ask for is The Unseen Hand of God. Or you could simply mention today's date so we can get that out to you right away. Now you can request your copy by writing Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Again, that's Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And please don't forget to tell us the call letters of this station when you get in touch. This is one way we can gauge the impact of this outreach. What purpose do trials have in the providence of God? And that's coming up on the next Simple Truths. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California www.calvarychapelpasadena.com